is take us to Matthew 5 uh, for a few months uh, as I've had opportunity back in Huntsville, Alabama. I've been doing a series uh, with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes that I call the Beautiful Attitudes. And this is actually the last lesson that I've not yet delivered back at Calvary in Huntsville. I'm looking forward to on the 17th later this month. But uh, that's where we want to go this morning in this lesson. Uh, as you can see from the slide, I'm in talking about the concept of suffering for Jesus' sake. And so we're going to be examining the impact of persecution on a believer. But you need not have studied through lessons one through seven. Uh, in order to receive some form of edification from this message. This message can stand alone by itself. But some review to set the context is very important. So here's what I want to do. If you'd follow along as I read verses 3 to 9, and then when I get to verse 10, join me as we read in unison verses 10, 11, and 12. But let me read for us, first of all, verses 3 through 9. Matthew 5 Beginning at verse 3, Jesus speaking to the disciples, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then together we read from verse 10 to 12, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Very good. You know the subject of the sovereignty of God has always fascinated me personally. Especially so when I can see God's handiwork in the midst of all of it with my own eyes. I want you to allow me to share with you an example of that as it relates to my family, as it relates to missions, as it relates to the subject of persecution. First of all, let me remind you where missions all began for my wife and I. It began in the country of Singapore in January of 1989. 34 years prior to that, 1955, my father-in-law, Mary's dad, Donald K. Ryan, graduated from Houghton College, a Christian college out in the state of New York and shortly thereafter was married to his sweetheart, Dorothy Mills. You may have heard about Houghton College recently as the pandemic because Dr. Deborah Burks is a graduate of Houghton College. But during my father-in-law's four years at Houghton College, he had two Japanese roommates, one of which is named John Stada. We affectionately, as a family, refer to him as 
Uncle John. You can see him in the photo there in the second row, the second person in on the left, the short little Japanese man. Uncle John's father was the late David Sugio Stada. And that man, David Stada, is known as the John Wesley of Japan. David Stada was the founder of the Emmanuel General Mission, which is an indigenous Japanese holiness denomination founded in 1945. They would be Wesleyan in their theology, uh, Methodist in a sense. What's of particular interest to me is the fact that David Stada, uh, David Stada, was the son, now I'm going back to the third generation, David Stada was the, the son of a man named Henry Stada, who was a Japanese dentist and a Methodist living in Singapore, of all places, in the early 1900s. So his son, David, studied at the renowned ACS, or Anglo-Chinese school, which would have been a Methodist private school in Singapore to this day. And after graduating from high school, David Stada went on, because of his academic excellence, to study at Cambridge University in London. However, in spite of all of his academic success and a desire to pursue law, he believed God was calling him into the ministry. So he left Oxford and returned back to Japan to go to Bible college and to pursue his evangelistic endeavors. He soon married and had five children, of whom Uncle John Stada was his oldest child. Now at this point, you're probably beginning to wonder, Brother Pat, what does all of this have to do with being, being dealing with persecution for Jesus' sake? Well, I'm getting there. In the beginning of World War II, let me tell you a story about this David Stada, the John Wesley of Japan. David Stada in World War II refused to plant the Japanese flag in the front of his church and bow deeply to it because to bow deeply to it was a bow to the emperor in the imperial palace there in Japan. Instead, David Stada said, only God in heaven is divine and we worship him alone. So on June 26, 1942, David Stada was arrested and imprisoned and put in solitary confinement at the Sugamo prison, which no longer exists today. And then after two years of solitary confinement, he was convicted and put on probation. And as the war ended, David Stada decided to build a church in Tokyo, naming it Emmanuel, because you, O oh God, are with us just as you were with me in the cell. In 1949, David Stada founded the Emmanuel Bible Training College in Ur um, Urawa City, just about 20 miles north of the city of Tokyo. And this man, David Stada, the John Wesley of Japan, died in 1971. But his eldest son, Uncle John Stada, was my father-in-law's roommate at Houghton College from 51 to 1955. 
and date and Uncle John Stada uh, had eight children. My father-in-law had nine children, of which my wife was number five. Uncle John had eight children, all of whom went into the Lord's work of one form or another. Now, as a side note to this, very interesting aspect, another aspect of God's sovereignty in our family story. My father-in-law, Donald Ryan, after 32 years, remember he was married in 1955. Um, after 32 years, when my wife and I got married, December of 1986 on Guam, my father-in-law came to that wedding on Guam and then subsequently went out to Japan to reunite with his Japanese roommate, Uncle John Stada. That was 1986. Ten years later, Mary's younger brother, Don Ryan, his dad's namesake, Don Ryan, got married to a Japanese at Yokota Air Base in Japan. And the man who officiated the wedding was Uncle John's Stada's son, David Stada, a pastor there in Tokyo, and he did the wedding for my brother-in-law. So that family, the Stada family, remains very much connected relationally to our family until this very day. little bit of background there and fascination with the sovereignty of God, persecution, our family, Singapore, Japan. Only God could knit that mosaic together. Let's go to our text. And I want to give you an overview focusing on two words, the word blessing and the word audience. As far as blessing goes, this sermon by our Lord begins in verse 3, as we read with that very word, blessed. And it comes from the Greek word makarios, which Bible scholars translate it differently. The most common translation for makarios, believed by probably most preachers, is the idea of being happy or prosperous. However, a few take the perspective that the word makarios, blessed, means approved. I choose to embrace a third perspective. Uh, this is presented by uh, Spiral Zodiades as he translates uh, the Greek version of the New Testament, and he translates makarios as fully satisfied. And my conclusion is, since these beautiful attitudes are pointing us toward life in God's kingdom, ladies and gentlemen, that can be the only place and the only time when you and I, as God's people, will be fully satisfied. So, blessing. But secondly, audience, the audience. Our reading of verse 10 reveals each of these beatitudes have been given in the third person, okay? From verses 3 to 10, each of these beatitudes is given in the third person. Each appears in some form of blessed are they. You can see that beginning in verse 3. However, we notice there's a change that takes place from the third person to the second person in verse 11 with these words. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So we move to the second person there. 
Now, when that happens, this message of these beautiful attitudes becomes very personal. In other words, this has significance for us as a church. May I suggest that persecution and joy are literally part and parcel of our Christian journey on earth. Let's get into the lesson. I want to begin with the reason for persecution. And I want to do that by asking this question. Why would someone persecute you? Why would someone persecute me? Look at verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice that phrase, for righteousness' sake. Do you realize the theme of righteousness is central to the Beatitudes? Here we discover the reason people are persecuted is for their righteous behavior. Notice verse 11. Instead of ending with, for righteousness' sake, how does it end? It ends, for my sake, Jesus speaking. And Jesus was making this point, a point that he made in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15 and verse 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, what is it about righteousness that gets under the skin of unbelievers? Well, let's define that word righteousness. The New Testament uses righteousness in the sense of conformity to the demands and obligations of the will of God. And here you see it on the screen. What is it about God? All that God is, that's righteousness. All that God commands is righteousness. All that he demands, all that he approves, all that he provides. So it stands to reason. In order for people to be imputed with God's righteousness, one must be a follower of God. Remember, that's the great exchange that takes place when you and I are born again. I take off that robe of sin and it's replaced with a robe of God's righteousness. I am covered with all of who my God is. You know, righteousness is the opposite of sin. As we all know, that verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? In other words, what fellowship hath righteousness with sin? And what communion hath light with darkness? Righteousness, ladies and gentlemen, is confrontational. You know, Jesus declared in the Beatitudes that righteousness is literally a gift to those who are granted the kingdom of God. In other words, when you come to Christ and he becomes Lord of your life, Savior and Master, you begin to experience righteousness for the first time ever. The Apostle Paul taught that righteousness was part and parcel of salvation. Think with me of Philippians 1.11. 
being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, as believers, we must face the fact that if we're going to reflect a righteous life, we're going to have to suffer for doing so. And if there's someone who was acquainted with that firsthand, it was that famous Christian author, preacher, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He spoke of it from experience when he said this, and I quote, Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. He went on to say this, and I quote, Martin Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. You know, the Bible warns believers that persecution will be the believer's fate and fortune in the course of our Christian journey. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Let me read it for you. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul told the church at Thessalonica these words, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 and 4, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. Secondly, this morning, let me share with you the ramifications of persecution. Let me ask this question as we do this. How would someone persecute you? What's it going to look like when it impacts my life personally? How am I going to be persecuted? The first question dealt with the why. Why would I be persecuted? Now I deal with the how. Well, let's look at two key words found in verse 11. They are the words persecute and revile. Let's get an understanding of what these words really mean. The Greek word for persecute is dioko. And it means to chase, to harass, to vex, and to pressure. And it's used in the context of chasing down a criminal. That's persecute. What about revile? The Greek word for revile is onaidizo. And it means to criticize with verbal abuse as to abrade, to cast some insult into another person's teeth. You know, verse 11 conveys the idea, blessed are the harassed. As we all know, persecution can go to very physical extremes. We have plenty of examples after a good reading of Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know. But F.F. Bruce, in his commentary dealing with this book, the book of Matthew, has written, and I quote from Bruce, the persecuted are not merely men who have passed through a certain experience, but men who bear the abiding traces of it in their character. They are marked men and bear the stamp of trial on their faces. However, most often, 
persecution takes the form of verbal harassment. Sometimes audible, sometimes whispered, sometimes direct, sometimes by mere innuendo. But for the missionary, and I speak from experience, when a missionary who does not know the native tongue, does not know the language of the people among whom he ministers, but is surrounded by those people speaking in their own language which we do not know. Imagine them saying things about you that you cannot understand. That is often the life of a missionary. There's something worse than persecution for believers today. You say, really? That would be the lack of persecution among believers today. R. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite commentators, points this out. And he says this, and I quote, Many believers are cut off from the world. They go to church that's 100% Christian. They attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. They attend Christian schools. They exercise with believers. They garden with churchgoers. They golf with fellow believers. And therefore, they're sealed from persecution. By far the greatest reason there's so little persecution is the fact that the church has become so much like the world. Dear friends, if you follow Christ there's bound to be a price to pay. But if the church will not be persecuted, it will not be a church after long at all. In Luke 9, 26, the Bible says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. Let me try and draw this to a close. Point number three, the reward of persecution. We ask one final question. What is to be gained from persecution? So if you look at the beginning of verses 10 and 11, what you discover is a double blessing because verse 10 starts with the word blessed. Verse 11 starts with the word blessed. So back to back, a double blessing. And that double blessing is for those who are persecuted. But according to verse 12, what is that blessing? Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward. Where? In heaven. So from that we learn that citizens of the kingdom are going to inherit the kingdom one day. Now let's consider verse 12 in greater detail. This is the reward that no one is seeking. <laughs> However, here is found the most striking beatitude of them all. Not only is it the last beatitude, it's the longest. And it's the only one associated with a command. And it's the only one repeated by Jesus. And it's the only one addressed directly to the reader. There's something vitally important. 
that Jesus wants you and I as followers to understand about this beatitude. Not only does following Christ involve suffering, but following Christ, to God be the glory, involves a reward. A reward. You know, both my wife and I and missionaries around the world over the last millennia can testify to this promise as it's recorded for us in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. You've heard it so often, read it so often. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or, si or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, Houses and brethren, sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the world to come, eternal life. You know, we know that God rewarded Old Testament saints who suffered for following God. I'll give you two examples, Joseph and Daniel. Joseph, first of all, remember the story how he was sold into slavery by his brothers, how he was later falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and eventually imprisoned. But God raised him to become prime minister of Egypt and used him to save his chosen people out of starvation as well as extinction. Then think of Daniel. Daniel thrown into that lion's den because he refused to stop worshiping his God and there God stopped the mouths of those lions. And Later God restored Daniel to a position of high honor the most valued commissioner of King Darius. We also know that God rewards believers in the here and now. But he also rewards believers for all of eternity. Remember Jesus said in verse 12, for great is your reward in heaven. You know, Christian missionary and author Don Richardson wrote that famous trilogy beginning with Peace Child, Lords of the Earth, Eternity in Their Hearts, about missionary endeavors to the land of Irian Jaya. I've been to Irian Jaya. I have two missionary families in Irian Jaya. No longer called that. It's called Papua Indonesia. But if you've read Lords of the Earth, you know the story as it's presented, and I'll summarize it for us here. There Richardson wrote and tells a story about two male missionaries, Stan Dale and his close colleague, Phil Masters. After years of working among the Dani tribe, they ventured into a treacherous territory of the Yali tribe. And I've, I've been with the Yali people. The Yali had one of the strictest religions of the world. To either question or disobey one of their tenets would bring instant death. When Standale came with his wife and four children. Now this is back in the 50s when they started there. Into the 60s. They were, as you'll hear the story, they, they died in 68. But when Standale brought his wife and four children, he worked among the the Dani, and then he ventured into the Yali tribe. 
And I'll tell you, the Yalis did not tolerate Standale. In fact, one night he was attacked and miraculously survived after being shot with arrows, I think five arrows in that first attack, and he pulled them all out. He recovered. And what do you think he did? He returned to continue working with them and approaching them. And then one day, Standale, Standale and his co-laborer, Phil Masters, and a Donnie tribesman by the name of Yemu, were attacked and overcome by the, a group of Yali warriors. And Stan stood there and tried to confront his attackers while being shot with dozens of arrows, and he was literally pulling them out and breaking them in half one at a time. As he continued to stand, his strength was slipping away. He could no longer remove the arrows, but he remained standing. Yemu, the Donnie tribesman, ran back to Stan's colleague, Phil Masters, and he told Phil, uh, or Phil looked at him and said, Yemu, keep running. But Phil stood there, and then he approached where Stan was, and he yelled out to the Yaliman, You've killed my brother! And so they surrounded Phil. And they began to pummel him with arrows, dozens upon dozens of arrows. Needless to say, both men died. Their bodies were dismembered. They were scattered in the forest, the rainforest, because the Yali tribesmen would do whatever they could to prevent a resurrection that these men had been preaching. But not in spite of, but in light of, not in spite of, but in light of their martyrdom, the gospel came to the Yali tribe and many others throughout Erie and Jaya. I want to conclude by asking us to ask ourselves one question. How should the believer respond to persecution? How should the believer respond to persecution? Well, we should neither run nor hide. If we continue to read from Matthew chapter 5, the verses that follow verse 12, what do we discover? Well, we discover that believers are what? We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And therefore, our salt will always sting the world's open wounds of sin. And our light will always cast out the darkness that sinful man loves. Nevertheless, we're commanded at the beginning of verse 12, jump with joy. That's what that word rejoice literally means. Jump with joy. Why? Because as believers, we have our reward both in the here and now as well as in the hereafter. Amen? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we cannot even begin to comprehend this paradox of being able to experience joy in the midst of persecution. We have to experience it 
to have our faith affirmed. Lord, thank you for grace. We know it is enough. Thank you for the privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. Thank you for never leaving us nor forsaking us, but going with us through the trial. In Jesus' name, amen.